Hello, and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Um, I'm taking the place of Aaron today um, as lead, I guess, but I am joined by my co-host, um, third year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Tosh. We're also joined again by a returning guest host, child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Michelle Tom. Hi, Michelle. Hey. And the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. So um, today's show, we are joined again by our guest, Dr. Lauren Dundies, who is a professor of sociology at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, where she's been for the past 25 years. She is the editor of the 2019 book, The Psychosocial Implications of Disney Movies. She has published 10 articles about Disney movies in academic journals. So welcome again, Lauren. Thank you so much for coming on. No, glad to be here. So today we're talking about uh, Disney the happiest company on earth. <laughs> um, we're going to take a look at, at um, their reputation and the rep reputation they purport themselves. So um, let, let me ask you guys, have you all been to Disneyland ever? Have you been to Disney World? Have you been to one of the parks? Yes, I, I, I have. I don't know about Alan and Michelle. Yeah, I have Disneyland, but not the other parks. Yeah. Alan? I've been to Disneyland and uh, not the other parks, which is a shame. I actually took a class on the Disney parks and the one that I'd really like to go to the most is Epcot because it's so strange and maybe we'll get into that. But, we should. Uh, we should get into it. I think you left some a teaser in our last episode about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, but, you know, uh, yeah, Disneyland, great time okay, <laughs> for, I for $250. <laughs> <laughs> I have been very privileged growing up. I had, I still have an uncle who um, retired from the Disney Disneyland theme park. He was a janitor there and um, employees get, you know, a certain number of guest passes. It used to be unlimited um, back in the day. And so he took my family and me every year to Disneyland for free. So I, I was very lucky to be able to do that. And that's one of the reasons Disney and Disneyland has a special place in my heart. Um, but I mean, speaking on that, you know, Disney has become a status symbol to many um, as the place to vacation, right? Um, uh, kids across the country um, want to go to Disneyland and its affiliate parks. Um, what do you guys think about that? You know, as the prices continue to go up, I mean, just recently this year, they changed the whole annual pass thing to being something completely different and undoubtedly more expensive. Any thoughts on that? There, there's actually different levels. It's like a whole Russian doll, uh, like <laughs> Russian expanding doll of status symbols. So there's like a, there's different levels of status, including a, a super exclusive club called Club 33. Um, where only basically like one percenters can go um, <laughs> and they sell exclusive things that sort of let people know that, oh, I had access to buying the merchandise in Club wow. 33. Yeah. Um, all kinds of things. I think in terms of it, it being a status symbol, like in, in we see um, a, we see 
you know, stickers of the, that people have the annual pass on cars. Yeah. Disneyland for me, at least I feel almost privileged being a Southern California resident um, because, you know, Disneyland was in my backyard. It was accessible and on your birthday, at least, you know, what is it? 20 plus years ago, you got to go in for free on your birthday um, I don't know if my family, if they would have lived in another state, if we could have even afforded to go to California, stay in California, um, you know, pay for flights, and then on top of that, pay for tickets. Um, so I don't know. It's um, Disneyland for me. It was always like, oh, a convenience thing. Like, oh, it's there. I don't have to travel anywhere. I get to go in for free on my birthday. Um yeah, I think you said now, that really well, Michelle. I think that's like, that's kind of fascinating, right? It's the, it's the happiest place on earth. And I, th- I also had like these happy experiences there. And then you kind of mentioned the other side that, you know, even right outside the happiest place on earth, like in the surrounding communities, there's some very unhappy poverty going on. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's right. Yeah. And now you don't get in for free on your birthday. <laughs> right. Well, Alan, did you want to talk about Epcot? Do you want to lead us off into the conversation about the parks themselves? Sure. So um, this was something that is now, Epcot is now a, a park, a Disney park, but it wasn't always uh, a Disney park. So Epcot was, Epcot stands for the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And, and, and just to clarify, was, this is, this, these are things you learned in, in your college course, right, on Disney. Yeah, but they're readily available um, everywhere. The, the article mm-hmm. I'm referencing right now is called The Perfect Town, but there's also, I mean, this isn't secret. This stuff is on, you know, Wikipedia and wherever else. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, what else did you get from that college course? There was stuff about, I mean, it's funny that uh, Lauren had mentioned her Pocahontas paper. I, I My favorite one of my favorite movies I think as a child was Pocahontas and I also wrote a Pocahontas paper after realizing just how much of that movie is there's you know it is uh not great to be teaching folks and not that that was not that they were doing any better than all the other movies you could see at that time um but there was definitely a lot about revisionist history there was stuff about Disney's role in World War II propaganda um, in Disney and speculating on whether Walt Disney was racist of his own right or racist in sort of like the, the, oh, he was just as racist as anyone else at the time and there, and he just had more power kind of thing. And there's tons of people who will make both arguments, although most of the people who make the pro Walt Disney art arguments seem to have a horse in the race. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was a lot about the parks and how they were built. There was a thing about how in order to make the paths at Disneyland, um, they would kind of film people making decisions and then determine the optimal human decision and then make paths, like actually put little tchotchkes along the way so that people could only take one path and and it would be the optimal path and they wouldn't have to make human decisions because in the happiest place on earth, you don't have to think, right? Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I, w- I would have loved to take that course. And it's funny that you took a Disney course and then Lauren teaches 
of course, talking about Disney movies. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is, uh, you know, we've been talking about Disney um, as a business, uh, creating this culture um, where they're seen as, you know, the happiest place on earth and everything like that. Um, One of the interesting things that I read in preparing for this show was that uh, in 2015, Admiral Robert Papp, the U.S. Special Representative for the Arctic, which I didn't know we had one of those, um, asked Disney to use frozen characters to teach about climate change. And Disney, he said, said no. And the way Pap recounts the story is that Disney responded that, quote, it's in our culture to tell stories that project optimism and have happy endings. Lauren, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's really um, a, a very controversial area because some people say Disney is a for-profit company. If that's not a secret, it's not pretending that it's nonprofit and philanthropic, although it has certain causes that, that it supports. But it's it's always a fine line. It comes up a lot, for example, like with pharmaceutical companies and should they have to give away some of the, the medications for free if they're life-saving, but they, you know, they're for profit. So it's, it is a little bit of a tough line and it's always, um, it's always controversial to know how to play that out because I, I do understand the argument that Disney's not in the business of educating people. And with some, in terms of some of the historical inaccuracies, some people bring up, which I think is a valid argument. Uh, like if, if you get your history from Disney, then that's uh, a problem. Of course, in this case, it's the reverse because the idea is that to have the Disney characters are fictional, promoting you know a cause that has you know gets people worried is kind of the, a, a reversal of that. I, I encountered a little bit of this um, sort of corporate uh, branding um, phenomenon when I wrote my first article about Frozen. I've written three, mm-hmm. um, two on the first one and, and one on the second Frozen, and I wanted to have some illustrations from uh, screenshots from the movie. And of course you have to get permission. And Disney Mm -hmm. wrote back after a couple months and said um, that uh, the portrayal of their characters in my article fell outside of quote, their brand integrity guidelines in terms of their brand integrity guidelines, they didn't like my uh, approach to the characters and the, the kind of analysis. Um, of course, they can't stop the publication of the article, but I think they felt that that would be kind of an endorsement somehow if they were allowed to use the pictures in their proprietary. They don't want mm-hmm. to do things that are going to affect their profit. And, you know, we, we talked in another segment about the, having gay characters and what that might do to their bottom line. And this is something else, even something where the characters are deemed to be uh, influential in a way that that's not positive. And so they're, they really, you know, they're, they're very protective of their brand. Exactly. Very protective. That's a really good way of describing it. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say a little bit more about why, why do we care about the influence that Disney has and why it is such a cultural phenomenon and it's known around the world. Um, Just as a side note, um, (laughs) I am shocked as of recently, how many of my students have Disney plus? I actually don't, 
but they there was a movie and I said was it have you seen this movie and and uh, I had it was a movie that I had to buy to see and my students like no we have Disney plus I said well raise your hand if you have Disney plus and it's not cheap and most of the class raised their hand that mm-hmm. was 25 students and so I was really stunned to see that but my concern is that uh, we see partly anecdotal and partly from research uh, it's hard to research this what is their influence but we know that the the characters are extremely popular. If you, you know, talk to people who are in Halloween stores and what costumes kids buy, we know that it's very, very popular. And um, it also, Disney has tapped into psychologically something that's very powerful and appealing. And that is that the kids are in control. And at one point when 22 uh, in the movie Soul uh, proclaims, I'm in the chair which is, you know, referring to right. the barbershop scene, right. but I have power. And so I think that that's uh, you know, why Elsa is partly so popular. Forget that it doesn't matter that she doesn't have romance in her life. It really is very appealing because kids want to have power. They grow up, they've got their parents telling them what to do. The teachers tell them what to do. They want to be the ones, the smart ones with the superpower. So Disney's quite okay. effective in having the role reversal. And even though the uh, in Frozen, which I've written so much about, the uh, Elsa and Anna's parents aren't, aren't stupid. They're not bumbling fools like in some of the other movies in Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, mm-hmm. um, the cartoon versions, um, they're still not there. And they, from a young age, you have people, they're not children, but young people having to uh, rule, rule uh, their kingdom and that kind of thing. So I think that Disney has figured out uh, some very powerful ways to get kids to relate to the characters, um, you know, wielding these powers. And uh, I, so in that sense, Disney's very successful. That and the Oedipal and Electro theme, which is very much omnipresent mm-hmm. in their movies. So I do think that there is reason that we need to scrutinize Disney as a company and their influence because they really, when you look at the reach of the company, it's astounding. Go ahead, Alan. If I can jump on that, just in terms of the kind of Disney repeatedly seeming to fancy uh, these like monarchy kind of glorifying or promoting films that's echoed in Disney's business practices of uh, being very anti-union in many, many different iterations and settings. Um, it seems they, they, they uh, learned a few things from the monarchies. Mm, If you're just joining us, this is Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about the happiest company on earth with Professor Lauren Dundies. Um, You know, something I wanted to share, something I wanted to jump off of was we were talking about how good Disney is at protecting its reputation. Um, But what I didn't realize until um, maybe yesterday is that Disney actually uh, sells this reputation. They have a training course. I don't know if you guys know about this. They have a training course where they will come to your company and teach your company how to be more like Disney. So I'm looking at this website. This is the DisneyInstitute.com, DisneyInstitute.com. On demand, Disney's approach to employee engagement. Um, And it talks about it. it, So I'm reading straight off the website. In this on-demand course, Holly, Brian, and other seasoned Disney leaders share the magic and time-tested wisdom of the Disney approach to organizational culture. 
While often viewed as a human resources function, we believe creating a healthy culture is a responsibility of everyone in the entire organization. We'll show you how to begin to influence your team or organization to be intentional about creating a thriving culture through the selection, training, communication, and care of your people. Yeah. Any thoughts on this? You know, while I'm not, while it doesn't uh, capture me to want to be one of their first customers, or I'm sure I would be in a long line of customers, um, it doesn't seem all that much different from lots of other companies that are willing to train you in their methodology that don't strike me as particularly award-winning companies. And it seems like it's almost like an art now where all of these different companies um, have kind of these awards posted for how they've all of these companies, particularly I think when you go on the websites and I, I definitely can't mention names on the podcast, but you go on the website of like any company that you think of as like widely known as being kind of problematic. They, they have all these like awards for diversity and workplace, mm -hmm. this and that, that you've never heard of the, the awarding organization or something. And surprise, they're willing to offer you a course in how to use their award-winning magic secret sauce of right. how they, magic you know. <laughs> this is the same company that Rashida Jones left writing Toy Story 4 uh, because she didn't feel Pixar valued female or people of color voices. She said that to Vanity Fair in that 2017 article. It was the same company. Um, this is the same company whose, um, whose founder hosted a Nazi filmmaker when she came i think to the u.s i don't know where she where he hosted her but yeah i mean this is the same company who's who's constant whose founder is constantly being uh sort of questioned about or, or um debated about whether he was merely a, a, a person of his time or a true and sincere nazi sympathizer mm -hmm. you know one of the other things i wanted to talk about is um I think we keep coming to like, why is it important to analyze these things, these mm -hmm. movies? And, you know, they're just children's movies. Why are, why are they so, why are we looking at them so closely? Um, and one of the things you had said, Lauren, uh, before was that, you know, the thing is that these mishaps keep happening. Um, these are things that, these are problems that we see in the company over and over again, not just in mm -hmm. their movie messaging also in the company. Yeah, right. I, I have to say that, you know, no company is perfect. And when you're doing something, creating this work of animation, I, I just find it stunning that, if, for example, in the case of Soul, there's so many wonderful things about the movie. You know, it yes. really is enjoyable and the message of Little Things Count and the music yeah. and, and, you know, the animation. You know, there's just so many good things about it. But why can't it, Disney do better? They've got the budget. And uh, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would critique it. I'm, I'm raising my hand now to critique it for free if there was a way to do it ahead of time. For, you know, for example, with, with uh, the first Frozen movie, Elsa was going to be the villain, like in the original Snow Queen, and then they decided to make her good, which is why Let It Go, she seems to be a villain, and then they had to, had to change it. They went back and rewrote things. So I don't understand why Disney can't do a better job of vetting their ideas and especially from people across culturally of different, you know, gender orientations and ethnicities. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Um, That's a really I, cool idea. 
Yeah, it just, it just, I don't, I don't get it. Like, what what am I missing? I did want to give a specific uh, example of one of my, one of my colleagues, uh, Churu Uppal, who's, uh, has a, uh, one of, authored one of the articles that's in my uh, Psychosocial Implications of Disney book that I edited. And she actually, uh, between 20, 2009 and 2018, she had a sample of 140 girls in uh, various countries, including Fiji and India, among other countries. And she asked them to draw. She had it was mixed methods where she you know, collected different kinds of data. But part of her research was to ask them to draw a picture of a princess. Didn't say anything about Disney. Draw a picture of a princess. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. Without saying the word Disney, mm-hmm. they drew they had been exposed to Disney even in places where they didn't have a lot of technology. And um, they all assumed that meant a Disney princess, which also meant a white princess. And almost all of the girls who drew pictures, like all but two out of the 140, they were white. And zero girls drew a picture of a princess in the traditional garb or dress of the country. So, and you might say, okay, well, who cares what the portrayal of a princess is? Most people don't get to be princesses. And yet there is this allure, this idea of being powerful and having control. And yet that, and that's associated with um, whiteness and being American and these certain Disney movies, even the old ones. In fact, some of the older princesses like Sleeping Beauty and Snow White are still quite popular. Yeah. And it it is, I mean, that that makes the point of how, broad Disney's impact is and and it also makes the point that you know lots of different cultures out there such a wide breadth that that Disney has an impact on it's hard to state definitively what that impact is on all the different cultures out there is there anything that you know of or any of us know of that that points to you know positive effects or messages Disney has had on children's culture or to children? Uh, it's very hard. Is there any research out there? Well, you, you did use the word effect. And as some of your listeners may know, uh, and you yourselves, uh, in research, it's, you can't really measure the effect because it's you know not in a laboratory setting. And so basically, it's trying to piece things together. In fact, my own research is, is trying to understand the unconscious and just looking for patterns and saying what they might mean from a Uh, social psychological perspective. So it is just my perspective. But I think that on the surface level, people tend to be very positive about Disney movies and really embrace them and love them. But I will tell you that I've been teaching now for 30 years. And over the course of 30 years, the students are uh, recognize that uh, once they're alerted to the patterns, they realize that that it might not be what they thought. And there's some, there's kind of a, a side that they really should be aware of and that's not so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Alan, we can't hear you there. Oh, thank you. Yeah. When, when you're really positive on something, um, you know, you have to look at what that thing is creating expectations for, right? So if, if someone promises you ice cream and you feel really good about that and then you feel really negative about the situation where, in fact, you didn't get the ice cream, um, you can't really, you know, I mean, you have to look at the person that promised the ice cream, right? So if there's this movie where uh, that's creating, again, the, the Gottman um, kind of love maps where you're, it's giving you a map of reality saying, 
if I do this, this, and this, my life is going to go this, this, and this love is going to be this way. And, you know, there's going to be a just world where, um, everything is kind of according to this Pleasantville 1950s reality. Um, there's going to be some disappointments and the, and people may not think to point the fingers back to the, the person who gave them the map. Right. And I think it's so inculcated in our culture that it's hard to see what's all, what's all around us. It really is very pervasive. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that uh, it's good to pay attention to it. We don't have to be right. We just need to be more critical and analytical and aware. I do think that, I feel as though, I mean, this might just be me here, but I, I get the sense that Disney kind of makes itself seen as an, as an authority on um, different cultures and making, telling stories of different cultures. Um, and when people in America go see the latest kind of cultural tourism movie, like Raya, Moana, um, they're expecting something that showcases authentic music and authentic costumes. And, and this, um, it just, it, for me, it leaves something, uh, there's, a, there's a lacking there for me in the enjoyment of the movie. And it didn't come um, finalize, I guess. It didn't finalize for me until I was listening to this podcast called Champagne Sharks and in it, the host, Trevor Ballou, I think I, I, I'm mispronouncing that, but um, he brings up Edward T. Hall's Cultural Iceberg. Um, and if you want to Google this, I, I could put a link in it and to the, in, in, to it in the show notes, but the idea is if you imagine an iceberg with just the tip showing, which is the minimal part of the iceberg, right? Most of it's under the water. That is the surface culture. The surface culture is the tip. The bottom is the deep culture. Um, and by surface culture, we're talking about the food of a community, the flags, the festivals, the fashion, the holidays, the dances, um, the language. And the deep culture, which is what we don't see a lot of unless you know, you're spending a lot of time in that country or community, is the facial expressions, the um, mannerisms, the body language, um, the, the, the inflections of voice, the, the volumes of voice, um, the, how that community conceptualizes the self, identity, time, um, what are its attitudes towards elders, to family members, to animals, to nature, uh, religion, how does that how does religion play a part in that community? And I feel like that is what I miss in a lot of these Disney movies um, where Disney seems to be selling like this is a cultural tourism experience. It's Disneyfied, right. Disneyfication, right. yes. Thank Disneyfication. You. And in my, my edited book, which by the way, uh, listeners can download for free. <laughs> um, it's an open access publisher. And uh, MDPI. But in that book, there's there are two articles that talk about this phenomenon. One is about how the music in the movie Moana is portrayed as, uh, quote, authentic. But in reality, it's very much reflection of Western musical uh, norms. And then there's another article uh, 
about Epcot and the westernization of world music in their illuminations, reflections of the earth, which is presented as cross-cultural and representing so many different cultures, but it is also like the music in Moana, very much Western. So that's part of the problem is that Disney is making some effort, but they're portraying it as more uh, represent, representative than it actually is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Thank you so much, Lauren. So that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we discussed the happiest company on earth. Thank you to uh, co-host Dr. Alan Atkins and guest host Dr. Michelle Tom. We also want to thank our guests. Uh, thank you, Dr. Lauren Dundies, for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. If you like our show, we'd really appreciate a follow, rating, and or comment. But any feedback would be very welcome. You can listen to past episodes of our show on your favorite streaming platform. Our producer is Elliot Fong, and I've been your host, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.